Today, we're going to look at Isaiah 61 to learn more about how God delivers us from the deepest kinds of brokenness. But first, let me start with a story. When I was in junior high, I was one of the favorite targets of the school school bully. His name was Darren Decker. Uh, And I grew up outside of Seattle, and one day during caterpillar season, I was walking home from school, and we have these really cute, fuzzy caterpillars in Seattle. Um, They're really prickly. They'll roll into a ball when you pick them up, and in season, they are everywhere. And he just walked behind me down the street, picking up caterpillars and pelting my back with them. And they would explode in a mess of guts and itchy prickles and... uh, He was not a nice kid. He also had a horrible father. Uh, I think he endured much worse at home than he dished out at school. Uh, He was full of anger and hurt and fear, though at the time I didn't know any of those things. Well, after the Caterpillar incident, I told a good friend of mine about it, Jeremy Stowe. He was a year older than we were, and Jeremy was one of the most feared kids at our school uh, because he tended to get in a lot of fights, and he had a real anger problem. Uh, And so he talked to Darren for me. Uh, And then Darren never bothered me again. Uh, And if you're curious, I was not a Christian during any of this time growing up, so I probably didn't have all the resources to know how to handle conflict. Um, But here's my question. Was the problem of Darren Decker solved? I certainly felt like it was. He, He wasn't bullying me anymore. But was it truly solved? Had anything changed? And I think the answer is no. He was still the same kid with the same anger and the same hurt. Right? One symptom was dealt with, but the underlying problem was unchanged. And when we're dealing with problems, we tend to focus on the immediate cause. We want to fix what's wrong in the moment. But all the bad stuff in the world and all the bad stuff in our lives, why does it happen in the first place? How do we fix what's truly wrong, not just deal with the symptoms? Well, one of the main stories God uses to teach us about that is the experience of the Israelites in exile. If you know the story of the Old Testament, then you know that Israel's sin forced them into exile. And for 70 years, they lived as subjects in Babylon. And today we're going to look at Isaiah 61. But first, if you have a Bible, open it up and glance with me at Isaiah chapter 60. And imagine that you are in exile in Babylon and you are reading Isaiah chapter 60. You will read things like this, verse 2. Though you are in darkness, the glory of the Lord will rise upon you. Verse 3, nations will come to your light. Verse 4, your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip, meaning the exile will end. You'll bring your kids back to Jerusalem. Verse 5, the wealth of nations will come to you. And it just goes on and on. They will have peace and they will have abundance. You're in exile. What do you think as you read that chapter? This is your hope. You, You cling to it right? Well, time goes by, and eventually the day comes. Persia conquers Babylon. Cyrus, the new king, sends the exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. And for 70 years, they have been holding on to passages like Isaiah 60. 
And now God's fulfilling it. So what would you be thinking as you were traveling back to Jerusalem? What would you be expecting? Well, probably you would be expecting something a little bit different than what actually happened. See, in the years after Israel returned from exile, yes, they were free, but the blessings promised in Isaiah 60, those still seemed just light years away. They, they were poor. They were in constant danger. The, the countries around them were constantly plotting their destruction. Why are they not experiencing the blessing God's promised? And I think that is a picture of the way that a lot of us feel in our Christian lives. You've come to faith in Christ, and you see the, the freedom and the blessing and the glory that God promises you. You know that it's true. But then you look at your own life, and so many of the same problems and the same struggles just keep on going on. Why is that? Has the problem truly been solved? Or you, you look at the nations around you, and you see evil, pride, the desire to dominate others, leading to wars all around the world. Right? We look at Syria and Iraq and Nigeria, and we want the wars to stop. Maybe the UN can put enough pressure on. Maybe someone can win, and they subdue the other side, and peace returns, and many people will rejoice. But has anything truly been solved? You see, there is an exile under the exile, a bigger problem that all the other problems in our lives point to. And as we look at Isaiah 61, we will learn who, what, why, and how God is going to solve the fundamental problems facing each one of us and our world as a whole. So let's read, and then we'll start. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair." They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast." Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance, and so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed." I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Amen. 
So first, who? And we see that God's answer to the fundamental problems facing our world is a person. And in verse 1, that person begins to speak. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And if you've read Isaiah before, you've seen this figure before. In chapter 11, we were introduced to this great Davidic, kingly, messianic figure. And there we're told the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And this descendant of David will bring God's kingdom and vanquish the enemies and rule with justice. He is a powerful figure. And then in chapter 42, we're introduced to another figure, the servant. And again, we read, I will put my spirit upon him. But this figure is very different than the one that was promised earlier. He doesn't lift his voice. He's gentle. He'll be a nurse to the, to the sick. And this creates a great tension in the book of Isaiah. We're told about this powerful, kingly figure, the Messiah, who will bring justice in the first half of the book. And then we're told about this gentle figure, the servant, who will be like a lamb led to the slaughter in the second half of the book. And who are these two, and how do they relate? And Isaiah 61 shows us that they are one and the same. You see, the servant who will bind up the brokenhearted is also the victor who will release the captives. We're told the one who will comfort the mourners is also the one who will bring down God's vengeance on his enemies. And this is perhaps Isaiah's greatest theological breakthrough. The servant is the Messiah. And just look at the incredible variety of things that this man will do. In the first four verses, we are told that he will fix poverty, sadness, slavery and oppression, the righting of wrongs, grief and mourning, sin, and ruined cities. Which is to say, he will fix everything that is broken. Injustice, sin, oppression, fraud, poverty, sickness, everything that's been torn down because of human sin will be restored. That there is something of cosmic significance about this figure. Verse 4 says that because of him, God's people will build up the ancient ruins. Now, the word translated ancient is the word eternal. And it can be used sometimes figuratively to speak of things that are ancient, but you can't just understand the word to mean old. It's used again in verses 7 and 8 to speak of eternal realities. Why does Isaiah speak of eternal ruins? Well, it's because there are ways that our world is essentially broken and has been ever since we were cast out of the garden. There is an exile underneath the exile. There is a brokenness to which all the ruins of this world point. And it is on this deeper brokenness that the last chapters of Isaiah focuses Yes, God will rescue Israel from the Babylonian exile, but that's not enough. Something more is wrong. Something more must be done to fix it. And so we're told that a man will come who is able to restore the eternal ruins of our world. Which is to say that the first thing we learn is that the essential answer to the problems of our lives and our world is not a system of belief or government, It's not a philosophy. It's not a kind of education. It's not a process of peacemaking. It is not a program. It is a person. And I think to a great extent, we innately understand that. Look at our literature, our myths, our movies, 
And what is at the center of almost every great story? A hero, a a rescuer, someone who will come and set things right. right. Sleeping beauty waits for the prince to come. David rescues the army from the Philistines. Attila leads the Huns. When you're in trouble, when you're desperate, what do you look for? A new idea? A great philosophy? No. You look for someone who has the power to save you. The exiles had returned from Babylon. They were free. But so much remained the same. Their fundamental position was not altered. They still lived in a broken world. They were still trapped in their own sin. They were still in hostile relationships. Because the one who could rescue them from the great human exile of sin had not yet come. The problem had not yet truly been solved. The answer was a person. And so if the first section, verses 1 to 4, tells us who, the next section, 5 to 7, tells us what. What will God do to fix what is wrong with our world? And we see that he will bring about a reversal, and that in two very distinct ways. The first reversal has to do with blessing in the place of curse. Right? From the very beginning, God had told mankind, if you turn away from me, you will die. And if God actually is the source of all life and blessing, then to turn away from him couldn't mean anything less. And Israel's history was a picture of that reality. For years, they've lived in shame and in dishonor. And here, God promises them joy and blessing. This is the reversal of the curse, the undoing of the fall of mankind into sin. But the second reversal is different. It has to do with the position of God's people in relation to the rest of the peoples of the world. And he says, instead of the other nations oppressing and mocking Israel, Israel will be vindicated and victorious. See, to assault and denigrate the people that God has chosen is to assault God himself. And that means that the vindication of God's people is a part of the vindication of God. So Isaiah proclaims the day is coming when foreigners will serve God's people tending their flocks and vines. And that leads to an obvious question. Is he saying that the oppressed will become the oppressor? Will will humiliated Israel rise up to humiliate others? Will God's people be freed from slavery so that they can enslave others? Because that's how real life works, right? The Germans committed horrible atrocities as they were marching into Russia in World War II. And what happened when the tables were turned? Well, the Russians repaid them in kind and then some, raping and pillaging whole cities as they marched on Berlin. Jerry Sitzer talks about this dynamic on a very personal level in his book, A Grace Disguised. A drunk driver had killed his mother, his wife, and his daughter. And then he wrote about what it was like to walk with his remaining children through the grief of that in the years to come. At one point, he writes this. In one instance, David, then seven, crawled up on my lap late at night, long after his normal bedtime. At first, he just sat there. Then, hesitatingly, he began to express rage at the drunk driver. He cried with anguish. He said that he wanted to punish that man and make him hurt as much as he had hurt us. 
He said that he wanted to make the whole world suffer so everyone would feel as bad as he did. After he stopped crying, we sat in silence for a while. Then he said, You know, Dad, I bet someone hurt him too, like maybe his parents. That's why he did something to hurt us. And then I bet someone else hurt his parents. It just keeps going on and on. When will it ever stop? Isaiah tells us. See, while Isaiah is clear that God's people will be vindicated, look at the outcome that he envisions. Verse 6. The nations will call God's people ministers and priests of the Lord, meaning that God's people will bring truth and salvation to all the nations. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. So Isaiah says in verse 7 that all the nations will receive everlasting joy, which is exactly what he had already promised Israel in chapters 35 and 51. The promise to Israel is being extended to every nation. He says that Israel will receive a double portion, and then he says exactly the same thing about the rest of the nations of the earth. You see, when God's people are vindicated, the result is not the subjugation of the world. It is the reconciliation of the world. In the place of enmity, there's peace and mutual blessing. And because there is only one true God, that must involve all the nations recognizing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no other. But they do not come in as slaves. They come in as co-heirs of the promises. So what will happen when God rescues us from the ultimate exile? There will be a full reversal. Instead of standing against us in judgment, he will stand for us in blessing. And instead of standing against each other in competition and oppression, we will serve each other in peace. Who will do this? The servant. And what will he do? He will reverse all that is broken. But why? These are remarkable promises. Why would God go to the trouble? If the world is so broken, if we are so depraved, if our societies are so lost, why would God not just wipe the world clean? See, most of us are so accustomed to speaking of God as Savior that we rarely even ask that question. We just take it as a given. But it is not. Why would God do this? Verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Simply put, God does not like things the way they are. He will not accept it. He will not leave it alone. It's not enough for him to do away with it. God's nature drives him to fix it. And as people made in his image, I think we have a taste of what that's like. Right? You, you see someone struggling with an eating disorder, some beautiful young person convinced that they're ugly, and you want to be able to intervene. Right? You want to be able to make them see things rightly. Or you hear of the poor being taken advantage of, 12-year-old girls being sold off as the second and third wives for evil men, and, and you want to rescue them. You want them to experience the life that God intends. You know, this is not the way things are supposed to be. In the movie Grand Canyon, uh, a car driver's, well, a, a guy's car breaks down in a kind of rough neighborhood. And as he's waiting for the tow truck to arrive, gang members begin to close in on him. And so then as the tow truck gets there, there's a confrontation between the tow truck driver and the leader of the gang. And the driver says this. 
He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can, and that dude's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Where does that sense come from? Why is it that when we see injustice, we know that things are broken? Right? Why do we object to the strong eating the weak? That's certainly not what the natural world teaches us. Annie Dillard wrote about it. She went to live by a little stream called Tinker Creek, and then she won a Pulitzer Prize for the book she wrote about her experience. And when she went, she wanted to learn from nature. And instead, she saw death and oppression all around her. The strong eating the weak, and then both being killed by chance. So looking at the natural world, she draws an analogy. She says this, Say you're the manager of the Southern Railroad, and you figure that you need three engines for a certain stretch of track. It's a mighty steep grade, so at fantastic effort and expense, you have your shop make 9,000 engines. Each engine must be fashioned just so, every rivet and bolt secure. And you send all 9,000 of them out on the runs, but no one's manning the switches. The engines crash, collide, derail, jump, jam, burn. At the end of the massacre, you have three engines, which is what the run could support in the first place. There's few enough of them, they can stay out of each other's paths. So you go to your board of directors and you show them what you've done. What are they going to say? They're going to say, that's a heck of a way to run a railroad. Is it a better way to run a universe? Nature loves death more than it loves you or me. This is easy to write, easy to read, and hard to believe. The words are simple and the concept clear, but you don't believe it, do you? Nor do I. How could I when we're both so lovable? Are my values then so diametrically opposed to those that nature preserves? This is the key point. Look, she says, Cock Robin may die the most gruesome of slow deaths, and nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creek goes on, the survivors still sing. But I can't feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, nor either of us about the robins. We value the individual supremely, and nature values him not a whit. She says, it looks for a moment like I may have to reject this creek life unless I want to be utterly brutalized. This direction of thought brings me abruptly to a fork in the road where I stand paralyzed, unwilling to go on, for both ways lead to madness. Either this world my mother is a monster, or I myself am a freak. And in essence, she's saying, look around you. Is anything more natural than for the strong to prey on the weak? Of course not. Lions don't hunt other lions, right? They hunt cute little gazelles, and they look for the weak, sick ones at that. So why then do we all object when people do this? Why do we know that that is not the way things are supposed to be? Well, it's because that is not the way things are supposed to be. And though deep in sin, we have not completely lost touch with the nature of our maker. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. God does not accept. He will not accept the current state of things. He will fix it. Okay, but how? How will God do that? That brings us to our last section, our last two verses, 10 and 11. He says, he will bring righteousness. 
He will bring it to individuals. He will bring it to the entire world. Verse 10 tells us, He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And that is justification. This is how God rescues us from our personal sin. He covers us with his own righteousness. Okay, but how exactly does the servant do that? And the word instead is critical in this chapter. Verse 3, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Verse 7, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Meaning the servant will take away what we deserve and give us what he deserves. We saw that earlier in chapter 53 where we read he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. This is substitution. He stands in our place so that we can stand in his. That's what the hero does, right? He gives his life to save the other. But this is not just for Israel, and this is not just for individuals. This is how God says he will bring his blessing to the entire world. Verse 11, as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So how will God fix the world? By sending a servant who will take what we deserve so that we can be clothed in the righteousness that he deserves. Now, that all sounds wonderful. But for some of us, there is still a lingering doubt. You say, okay, maybe I can see why Israel in the Old Testament was still struggling so much. They'd been freed from the exile in Babylon, but this servant hadn't come yet, right? But what about now? Jesus is the servant, very clearly. He has come. But isn't our experience still awfully similar? Well, when Jesus began his ministry, he quoted Isaiah 61. He stood up and read it and then said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's fulfilled it. He's the answer. He is the one. He rescues us from the exile under the exile. So then why is the world still so messed up? Why are we? Well, Jesus pointed to the reason in that very first sermon. He quotes Isaiah and says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you notice it? That is a strange way to quote Scripture. Because Jesus stops his quote in mid-sentence. He's he's reading along in Isaiah 61, and right in the middle of the sentence, he just stops reading. Because Isaiah says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And for God to fix the world, he must do both. Bring his favor to save his people and bring his vengeance to right every wrong. And in his first coming, Jesus came to do the former, but not yet the latter. The day of vengeance still awaits us. And listen, friends, you cannot have a final end to brokenness without final judgment. Because it is judgment that does away with sin, and it is sin that causes all of the problems. And that day is coming. But until it comes, we live in between the ages. Jesus has come. 
He does rescue from sin and death, but the brokenness of this world in many ways remains until he comes again, and we live in the tension in between. Let me end our time just very practically. As you're confronted by your own sin or as you're suffering because of this fallen world, where do you turn? What do you, what do you run to? Actually think about it. What is your tendency? What do you do? See, if you truly want healing, you must turn to this man. Your only recourse is a person. There are many great programs and good books and good things to do in order to grow and change yourself and improve the world, but if they are not utterly bound up with the person of Christ, they are insufficient. There is no program, no truth, no system that can fix what is wrong with us. Christ can. He has. He is. And did you notice there's not a single command in this whole chapter? In speaking about the restoration of the world, in this chapter, we're not told to do anything. The closest you get is verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, because this is our first response. Rejoice in God and the servant he has sent. More than you need to do anything, you need him. You need to understand so well what he has done for you that your soul exults in God. And if that happens, all the doing will follow along naturally. He is what you need. See, God knew that the rescue from the Babylonian exile would not be enough, that there is a deeper exile that every person and our entire world is subject to, the exile under the exile. This is our fundamental problem, and God has solved it by sending his servant to absorb the curse and clothe the world in righteousness. So rejoice. The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's pray. Father, truly you are our God, and you are the only God. And we thank you for your Son. We thank you that he came that he lived in our place, that he died in our place, that he clothes us with his righteousness. And so, Lord, will you give us eyes to see who you are and what you've done, that we would be restored, that we would be rescued, and that we would become instruments of your salvation in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.